Hey everyone, welcome back to the Vegan Inspired Podcast. I'm your host, Connor, and as always, thank you very much for joining me once again. We have a great episode lined up today, so let's get straight into it. Okay, hey everyone. Today's episode is all about a recent conversation I had with the founder of animal rights organisation Viva, Juliet. Firstly though, before we get into the main topic, I do have a few things to mention. So I would just like to say a huge thank you to everybody who came along and showed their support at the Vegan Spire outreach event in London. We gave out over 200 leaflets and had some very productive and meaningful conversations with the public. And it was just amazing to see people truly interested in the leaflets and actually sitting down to fully read through the information and the sad reality for animals. Hopefully this had an impact on those people and might actually encourage them to go vegan in the future. So fingers crossed. I am definitely going to be organising another outreach event in the near future. So we'll keep you guys updated on that. For those who listened to the previous episode, I am also going to be organising some great actions or demonstrations with Lewis in the near future. And so, for those who would like to support the work I do here at Vegan Spire, whether it be online or offline, I am now on Patreon, which is a platform that enables others to support the work I do with a small monthly donation. I have been very hesitant to set up a Patreon page, as clearly the message is 100% about the animals and in no way about ourselves. Since becoming vegan and standing up for the animals, I've dedicated my time to this cause that really is so important. And as you can imagine, hosting events and a podcast comes with a wide range of expenses, including equipment such as microphones, audio interfaces, laptops, televisions, banners, leaflets, business cards and a whole host of other things as well. 100% of the money raised through Patreon will go directly towards further enhancing my ability to deliver the vegan message to the general public in the most effective ways possible and will ultimately help Veganspire reach a wider audience. The main goal here is to really just help the victims within the meat, dairy and egg industries, the same as every other activist and organisation out there. Anything that you could give would be hugely, hugely appreciated. Now that I've covered that, let's get into today's discussion with Juliet from Viva. The main talking point was the documentary Hogwood, a modern horror story. This documentary seeks to expose pig farming here in the UK for what it really is and did so extremely well. The things Viva found during this documentary will absolutely blow your mind, especially if you're not yet vegan. Unfortunately, the call quality is not incredible, but it is still fine. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, I am hoping to purchase a second microphone, which will make the audio quality for guests as good as the current audio for myself. So with all of that said, I hope you enjoy this casual chat. So let's get right into it. Okay, so hey, Juliet, welcome to the Vegan Spire podcast. First of all, thank you so much for all you do at Viva and for taking the time to come on today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for supporting us. So obviously the main topic today is the Hogwood documentary. And this documentary is such an important one to talk about as there are many sort of standard legal practices within animal agriculture that we know are yeah. cruel and abusive. But Hogwood really documents just how bad these places are and how low the standards of life is for these poor victims. Yeah, and I think I should say at the beginning while I remember that... Um, we have the good news that it's going to be shown on Netflix from the 1st of April next year. So hopefully 
it will reach a much wider you know, meat-eating audience and have an impact and influence people, obviously, to change and go vegan. But yeah, I think, as you said, one of the one of the biggest responses that we've had from the public is that they just find it so upsetting and hard to believe that the standards within Hogwood are allowed at all. They just couldn't they couldn't understand when that when we exposed it that kind of the police didn't march in and the government and close the place down. People are so naive. And the sad thing is is that not only is somewhere like Hogwood legal it's actually just standard farming. It's a so-called mega farm, as they're known. So, in other words, a large factory farm that was supplying um, the biggest retailer in the UK, which is Tesco, and was supplying Panzic Foods, which most people haven't heard of, but in fact is one of the biggest um, pork producers in the whole of the UK and beyond. So, you know, it had big connections. Um, and the reason that I'm saying that, and by the way, it's Red Tractor approved as well. Yet again, Red Tractor approved. It's such a mean thing. I'm just saying that because I think we really have to get our heads around the fact that nobody offers these animals any protection at all. Um, it, it, it is it is astonishing in many ways because we are fed the line so often that Britain has the highest welfare standards in the world. I think that a lot of people believe that to be true. And it's just nasty foreigners who do nasty things to animals. Yeah. So I think Hogwarts, one of the reasons we made it into a documentary as opposed to being just a normal um, Viva campaign was to reach more meat eaters with that very message. And like you said, when you watched it again at Camp House and when I watched it again myself, you know, um, you know, seeing it on the big screen, it, it, it is shocking all over again that this is what we found time after time. And it is only because we left hidden cameras on the final investigation and filmed what we filmed, which maybe we'll talk about a bit, um, that they were forced to drop the place. But it certainly wasn't for the sake of the animals. Yeah, it really just amazes me. Like you said, when when you left cameras in there and found stuff that I suppose would be seen as a, a welfare issue with the farmer actually hitting the animals it takes that level of abuse for it to sort of become to the point where it's not acceptable. But all the times before when you'd visited and gone in and seen like the sheer scale of it and even animals cannibalising each other, that wasn't really seen as a welfare issue. And it takes such a, a crazy thing to happen for them to actually re- react and do something about it. Yeah, it was interesting because the first time we went in, um, well, we sent a scout in, first of all, to see how many, how much resources, you know, including our time that we should put into exposing the place. And what he found was so horrific that I went back myself with three colleagues and we just found everything that he found. And I, having filmed in these places for very many years now, I actually thought that Tesco would withdraw, to be honest, straight away. So it was really disappointing, their reaction, which was basically to defend the farm in every way they possibly could. But also... In, in effect, they were calling us liars without using that word. They were saying, oh, when we went in, we didn't see anything that you saw, you know. Um, I mean, we're not just talking about cannibalization, and that's bad enough. But we're talking about animals that have been left for weeks upon weeks, where ulcerations on the legs were so, so, um, left for so long, they've gone right through to the bone, and all the skin around it's completely black. Um, imagine the pain that that animal was in. I mean, how can anyone excuse that? The, the first time we went in, there were just all dead adult animals 
they were just strewn along the outside with blood coming out of their mouths. And I just thought the level, you know, was so appalling that, um, like I say, that Tesco would drop it, that Red Tractor were. In fact, what Red Tractor um, did, um, and the National Farm, the National Pig Association, they actually turned up to a vigil that we did outside of the farm because a lot of locals were against the farm. And a lot of people, it's near Stratford-upon-Avon, by the way, in Warwickshire. Um, a lot of locals came out. And these organisations actually turned up to defend the farm, which is unusual. They don't normally do that. And they did the press for them and everything. Um, I bet they're really sorry they did that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> because the media, I have to say, were very good. So we got exclusive stories placed in national newspapers that were completely against Hogwood. And the public were completely against it. And our own supporters were really good because they joined together in what we call Days of Action, where we'd go outside Tesco. So we'd ask our supporters to go to their local Tesco all on the same day. And we built up sort of actions that were just talking to the public and showing them footage. And we provided some of our groups with, um, you know, with the the, um, iPads or the laptops or whatever it was and the footage for them to show or just leaflets, but basically everyone was doing it on the same day. And, of course, the public really don't want to see that kind of cruelty and think it's wrong. And Tesco were getting hugely embarrassed, but still had their heels in. And they just wouldn't budge. And so we went back in again. It was very hard, though, the next time, because they spent £50,000 on making it even more secure. So wow. it was like getting short knocks. And there were cameras everywhere. So it became ever more difficult to actually go back in and re-expose but we did we went back in and we found what you were talking about and in fact i had to stop the investigation because the cruelty was so acute and we called a vet and we called the police and nothing happened of course Mm. um and yet again tesco still wouldn't relinquish and say oh sorry yeah what you found is terrible we're going to stop them supplying us um still and so we did another day of action and the national press got involved again. And the whole thing was building up, building up. So that our supporters kept asking us about Hogwarts and it really got into, you know, under people's skins. And, um, so we went back in again. <laughs> <laughs> and again, um, it was very difficult. It, I mean, we, you know, I'm not going to give too much away, but it, you really need specialized people to get in the final, the fourth time. Mm. And they were the ones that left hidden cameras and like you say it was only because we filmed multiple instances of people it was men hitting the pigs completely you know um arbitrarily and obviously completely needlessly and these animals screaming that tesco couldn't withstand the embarrassment it's just a complete it became a complete pr nightmare for them and sadly i did hear from a colleague who I can't, again, I can't give too much away, but somebody who worked at Tesco at a fairly high level, um, you know, said that what was going on behind the scenes was that Tesco was saying, Jesus, if we give in to Viva on this farm, we know that all pig, pig factory farming they're particularly um, sensitive about because it is the worst, in their view, of everything in the UK. And so they said they'd just replace that farm with another that was like it, and we would just expose that one the same. So they were holding on because it was normal factory farming. Can you believe yeah. this? Yeah. Um, and and but anyway, you know, we had that victory in the sense that Tesco you were forced with all really from the PR nightmare we created, and Cranswick Food said they'd never deal with them again. You know, um, trading standards did not prosecute them though, and neither did the RSPCA. 
And I think it's, that's very hard for people to get their heads around that places like that are not prosecuted. And maybe we could mention, um, if you want to, the dispatches, what they did as well, Channel 4, which is really quite extraordinary and, of yeah. course, fed into the drama of the documentary. I think there's that famous clip I've seen of the farmer talking on that TV programme um, mm. where he says that he treats his animals better than most nursing homes, which is just crazy to think that's sort of his belief of how he treats the animals. I know, it's a bit of a classic line, actually. Um <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, and I bet he's sorry he said that. <laughs> but, but I mean, dispatches contacted me um, afterwards. You know, the, the whole Hogwood campaign had become very big by this point. But at that point, Tesco still had not withdrawn. Um, so, for whatever reason, Channel Four dispatches decided basically to target Viva and do a so-called expose. It was called the Truth About Vegans, <laughs> and it was basically half the documentary was more or less dedicated to Viva and Hogwood. But in fact, because they showed our footage, um, not just what they filmed, that was enough to convince the public that the place was a hellhole. And um, I don't, I don't know. I guess for the public, I, I'm just reading into this from the response from the public to us was astonishingly positive. We got that's supposed to be against us. Than we did through the whole campaign in some senses. You know, in the you know individuals who just saw it sent us money and said, oh my God, you're doing an amazing job exposing this place. And obviously, <laughs> dispatches. I don't know what they wanted to do, whether that, you know, it was really disturbing because clearly their whole remit was to support the farmer. Um, so what was going on in the background politically, you know, we can all read into that what we will, but I don't actually know the truth of it. I can just guess at the truth, but it's, it's, Fairly worrying, but it's just so good that it totally backfired. Yeah. Um, so it was useful for our documentary, Hogwood, because on dispatches, the owner of the farm, Brian Hobbill, was interviewed. So we used bits of that footage, of course, for our documentary because he would never have been filmed for us. So it, so it ended up being really useful for that as well. Yeah. And it was funny we went back once Tesco had withdrawn and we were just do, literally just doing outside shots of the farm from a mile away with these very powerful cameras. And um, two workers from the farm, we drew up in a car that we'd never used before. And I was in the passenger seat. Somebody else was driving. And they must have known who I was because literally the, the second that they saw me, they downed tools and started running about. And I thought, oh, my God. And they blocked our car in when we were trying to film. Um, that, and, and they called the police, which was fine. I was glad they called the police because if they hadn't, we would have done. Um and it it was just like wow, um, yeah, they're really on the lookout for us. That you know they were sort of sensitive to what was happening, which meant we were having some kind of impact at least. Yeah. And then of course, Tesco did withdraw, and um, um, you know that the, the whole point that we made the documentary is because so many um, vegan documentaries, if you like, whichever angle that they're coming from are American or Australian. And there was very little that was British. And what we were finding from the British public that was that people were saying that doesn't happen here. So that's why we were really keen to show what bog standard factory farming life is in the UK, because although veganism is exploding in popularity, intensive farming has become more intensive. So we wanted to show people just, just the truth. And obviously, um, with the aim that, you know, if people see the truth, they're going to change themselves and 
change their families. I think it's so important, like you said. I mean, a lot of people, even now, I get messages from people saying that the welfare standards in the UK are so much higher than abroad. And it's just so important to highlight that it's no different here. And we see those mega farms in America and things like that. But this is exactly what you filmed here in the UK. So it's it's just amazing to sort of be able to show people that the welfare standards we're told is a complete myth over here. It's a complete myth. And as, as, as you'll know, the documentary goes on to just show quite briefly other factory farms. And if you'll notice, they were all supplying big names. So we showed another pig farm that was um, supplying Morrison's. We had filmed in the past where we actually filmed, literally, um, we walked into this place. This is um, in Yorkshire, actually. And the piglets were in cages, stacked one on top of another, you know, like the hens in battery cages. Um, these little playful mammals that are so hyper-intelligent, and I know pigs. I've, I've had the glory of knowing pigs from a sanctuary that I went to. We, you know, we were able to rescue a mum and her six babies, so I knew them growing up and the whole family and when you see them you know incarcerated like that it's just oh god it's just so terrible and this place again was supplying um, national supermarket chain who you know they did change because it was just too embarrassing for them but the, the, the fact of the matter is that existed and they only changed because we exposed them they knew exactly what was going on yeah. and this Again and again, last year, even through lockdown, when there was sort of like that, um, when we came out of the first major lockdown before we went into the second, we filmed again in another farm that we found out was supplying another national supermarket chain. All of them, these mm. terrible places, are supplying the you know the big guys. Yeah. Um, and they were all red tractor approved. Every single farm that we exposed as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, and red. Uh, um, last year, I don't know if you're aware, we we filmed somewhere called Flat House Pig Farm, which is in Leicester, and. We made a little film with myself confronting because that's quite unusual to, you know, to be able to confront the owner, um, and you know him kind of denying he had anything to do with it and all the rest of it. Um, and that place, we 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 called the RSPCA, but we did it not as evil. We called them as if we were individual members of the public, and they did to their credit. They did turn up pretty quickly, and two inspectors went in, and they're in there for two hours, but they wouldn't speak to us when they realised we were from Viva, which I find really really um um disappointing because we're two organizations that as far as i'm concerned we should be thinking we're on the same side okay our, our absolute ideals may not fully align but we should see ourselves as being on the same side you know the enemy's big enough if you like you know there's enough cruelty yeah but they they wouldn't speak to us they wouldn't report to us um this farm was every bit as bad as Hogwarts. I walked into the place and I thought I'd seen everything. And there's this animal thrashing about, no exaggeration, in agony on the floor with the eyes rolling back into the socket. And I carried on moving down this place and there were flies. I mean, a complete infestation. And um, I looked to my right and there's about 12 piglets. Well, I'd say about three months old. And one of them, you know, had obviously, again, it's this thing of just leaving them in pain. You know, you think, even if your thing is to farm animals, you think at the very least you would put them out of their misery when you know they're never going to go to slaughter because the animal was never going to make it. But they just leave them. And this animal was in such pain and her ribs were just sticking out of her back and her spine was sticking out of her back and this big protruding belly. 
Um, and it's a condition that they usually get from bacterial contamination in the intestines where they literally get a blockage and they cannot poo. So they can't, so they stop eating. So they're basically, oh, it's just, you know, and they're just left in, in that state. Yeah. And um, this place, the only good news I can say at the end of that is that we've heard, because we complain, by the way, when we go into these places, whatever, you know, whether it's chicken, turkeys, you know, pigs, whatever we're exposing, we will take our footage as evidence to everybody that we possibly can, which includes the government, obviously, trading standards, RSPCA, and so on and so forth. And in fact, trading standards said, send us your footage, but they they sent it back unopened. <laughs> So we were so disappointed because we thought we were getting somewhere because we'd been liaising with them. And then we discovered um, by keep it pushing that they had, you know, they'd gone in themselves. And that's why our footage, because they, they got clearly what they'd seen themselves. They didn't like and they are prosecuting. So, you know, sometimes you do get results like that, which is just absolutely fantastic. Another far we went on in lockdown very quickly i'll just tell you sorry i keep talking pigs a lot but it was another pig farm um and actually through because what we filmed was so upsetting in this case we filmed men who were literally swinging piglets open piglets over and onto concrete and killing them by smashing their heads on the floor and the estate that this farm was on closed the farm down completely the whole thing was being dismantled so again you know that was through viva going in and, and, and filming and that was red traps approved as well by the way so, um, and again, supplying, um, that was supplying Morrison's. So, you know, all the reason I'm trying to give you example after example after example is because these are big farms that are supplying the big names, and this is standard British farming. Yeah. Um, that's factory farming. Factory farming is cool. It's never going to be anything other than that. You know, how can it be? Because you're denying those animals absolutely everything um, and cramming them in as tightly as possible and getting them to slaughter away as quickly as possible. And so, obviously, all, you know, um, remnants of any kind of animal welfare, of course, completely go out the window. I think what's important as well is, obviously, as as vegans, we know that the most basic rights are denied to these animals anyway because they're killed against their will. But we sort of fed that myth that they live nice lives up until that point. And I think that's where the public sort of rely, don't they? They say, oh, I'm fine with it as long as they have a nice life. And I think it's important to highlight that what you found through visiting all these red tractor farms is that, say, they get rid of one farm at Tesco's, they're just going to replace it, like you said, with somewhere that's just as bad because all these places are the same and we're just fed myths by organisations like the Red Tractor. And something on the documentary that I thought was amazing to actually have in there was Alice, who was the vet from Red Tractor. So I thought if you could just sort of explain a bit about what she says and how getting accredited by the Red Tractor works in the first place. Yeah, definitely. And just while I remember, we run campaigns like Save a Baby. Um, so we did that this year where we had um, billboards and reached about 12 million people and then campaigned on that with local groups. And that was a picture of a lamb. And the whole point of doing that is exactly what you've said, which is to touch a nerve with the public that, that, that the animals that are killed are all babies and none of them want to die whatever species you're talking about, these are innocent lives that we're taking for no reason. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. But I think it's really important that um, because so many of the public, when they when they change for animals, it is because of factory farming. It is definitely one of the biggest reasons that people change initially. And then, of course, it's easier for people to open their minds, isn't it, to the other issues and the bigger philosophies. Yeah. But, uh, 
Yeah, going back to Alice, yes, you're right. She she was a very powerful component of the documentary because Alice, actually, she came to me when I did a talk in Birmingham on Hogwarts. So this was before Tesco dropped it or anything. And I was showing people footage and she came to me afterwards and said, look, I'm a qualified pig vet. Um, in fact, she won junior pig vet of the year, you know, um, and I really want to help you. I've just had enough of the industry and... At that point, I didn't know whether to trust her, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I just thought, well, I'll just talk to her. And, you know, most of what we say is public anyway, in the public arena. But I'll just be careful on a few points here and there and see what she asked me. And I met her near my home. And we had a good, you know, couple of hours just chatting. Um, And I said to her, do you want to do some, you know, freelance work for Viva? Because clearly... She was a very distressed person. She really, really needed to make good, I think. Um, the decisions that she has made, I think she has great difficulty with them because she worked with an industry and then became vegan through what she saw and you know, had many conversations with her about this. And she, she's come out the other side and, of course, is desperate to help these animals. And she said, I wanted to help them from within, but you just can't. It's impossible. You're just up against far too much. And any time she started to speak out against, say, a particular farm, the actual practice she was working for just basically shut her up. Um, mm. And that's what it's like. You know, this is what it's like for agricultural vets. Of course, most of them don't do what Alice did. And, you know, most of them just knuckle down, you know, and just play the game. Yeah. Um, because you wonder how do these factory farms you know how do vets not speak out against it and of course these agricultural vets this is what they do they, they, they are part and parcel of this system and they should be thoroughly ashamed of themselves because yeah. they are condemned worst possible cruelty and they have trained all those years to save lives you know i mean they're totally betrayed animals so she decided not to betray animals and to actually save them and she was really brave she when she worked with them a pig farm vet actually was um, paid by Red Tractor as part of that scheme. Sorry, not paid by Red Tractor because it's not Red Tractor that pays. You're paid by the farmer. So the farmer pays the practice that you're working for as a vet to approve you for Red Tractor, <laughs> if that makes sense, if it does. Um, yeah. So it's all part and parcel of a, of a system. It's not independent at all. Because that same farming practice where, where you... Um, get the red tractor approval from the vet is the one that also comes to see you and you're their client so it's he who you know pays pays the piper you know um it's it's just insane isn't it there's nothing independent about it and they're given warning so that you know they can clear up here and here so if there's an animal riding around in pain they're probably going to get rid of that animal for, for you know for that visit from red tractor um, but all the rest of it is just the same. Red, you know, the red tractor standards are abysmally low. And she, so she spoke out against red tractor about the actual standards on British pig farms and, you know, what she's seen and that Hogwood is appallingly low welfare, but that is the norm. Um, and it was just really useful because there aren't, I don't know if you're aware, there's only about, I think, 40 specialist pig vets in the whole of the UK. Yeah. So there are not to speak out. And she was one of them. And there are some other experts on there. I, I particularly respect Joseph Core because he's the one from Oxford University. 
he did a huge study which was published in Science and is, you know, well respected worldwide. And he's from Oxford University and lead researcher on the project. They looked at 40,000 farms, a huge number of farms worldwide, look at their impact on the environment. And it was through doing that work that he became vegan. Um, and he's, you know, he doesn't normally speak out for organisations, um, but he really respects Viva. And he came to our Vegan Now launch, which was all on the environmental aspects. And he went on the documentaries you saw, which it's, it's unusual to get academics to speak out, unfortunately, but um, he did. And, you know, he's very clear on that, that the world simply cannot sustain, um, you know, this mass consumption of animals. You know, the world is going under. We're you know, we're, <laughs> we're in the sixth mass extinction. So all these issues you know about. It's just so ironic that so many of the British public say they care about wildlife because they're taught to care and respect wildlife. We're taught to love pets. We are taught to kill farmed animals for meat. You know, we have this totally weird cognitive dissonance, as it's called. And, um, and yet, it's actually the biggest driver of killing wildlife, of course, is eating meat, dairy, and fish. Yeah. Um, um, and it's staggeringly worrying now how little time we've got left to kind of turn the climate crisis around um, but one of the things that we're moving into the whole area is, is trying to relate factory farming to what it's doing to the planet so that people are joining those dots because you know as I'm sure people listening to this know but the public kind of they're kind of they're on the edge there. They kind of know that those dots are joined, that all life is connected, but they really don't know why, the ins and outs of it. And they still, still are relatively ignorant on the environmental impact of consuming animals. Um, it's not so obvious as factory farming is cool. It's a little, slightly more complicated argument. But the science is now so on our side, if you like, that nobody's even pretending that we can still afford to consume animals the problem is that the government of the world not just ours um are simply not informing you know um the citizens of how to actually save the planet and that going vegan is the biggest step they can take as individuals um and so charities like viva you know were still relatively lone voices in, in the sense that nobody's spending the kind of money that's required to reach everybody and really convince them that everybody needs to go vegan now and, and we mean that you really do need to go vegan now you know if you care about the future yeah i think that's what's so important with veganism as a, as a whole is i don't know how but i come across quite a few people where you show them all this kind of footage from farms and slaughterhouses and things and people just generally don't care but when you sort of say to people it's going to affect your future and your kids' future, I don't get how people then don't make the connection and sort of make the switch towards veganism because, as you said, there's no way that we can sustain the way we're living much longer and time's quickly running out. It's, uh, it's quite scary to think about, actually. It is, it is. And our leaders, you know, again, should hold their heads, you know, down in absolute shame because the leaders of the world should be actually telling the public constantly look we all need to change ourselves and animal products have just got to go because the world cannot afford it and they should just be saying it as blatantly and boldly yeah. as that yeah. um, instead instead of it being shoved under the carpet instead of us 
I mean, how ridiculous that we have to actually lobby the UN for an environmental conference that all the food should be vegan. You know, I mean, how ridiculous that, you know, in 2021, with all their understanding, that we're still having to do that. And, you know, playing these ridiculous games that it's still okay to consume fish when they're the ones actually publishing reports saying that the oceans are collapsing ecologically, (laughs) you know, from overfishing. (laughs) I mean... You know, you, you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. like, what's wrong with a human species? You know, it, it's, to me, most people, though, I have to just to say, and I, I'm sure you agree, most people, it's not that we're born evil. Uh, you know, we really aren't. No. I do, I have through that, you know, I've been campaigning for a long time now, that most people just want to be shown the way. Um, most people don't want to be leaders, and they do want to be led. And the, the trouble is, we haven't got any leaders of any quality, you know, practically anywhere in the world. And that is so sad because I think, you know, if people were shown the way and constantly drip fed the right messages, you know, people would accept it and they go, yeah, yeah, sure, it's fine to be vegan. And you know, of course, of course, it's terrible to force that. You know, if they were told that from going to school, you know, from age three, four, yeah. constantly how terrible it was and that actually we care about all animals, you know, people just accept that, you know, but when we're not, we're told the opposite and, you know, still, still meat eating and fish eating and dairy consumption is the cultural norm. You know, we're still against the cultural norm. So it, there's, there's, there's quite a long way to go and I have various discussions, I'm sure you do, about what the so-called tipping point is for people and how distressing it is and, you know, that, that, that it's almost like the human race needs to see the trauma of things going terribly wrong right in front of their nose before, <laughs> before they act, which is a real sadness and shame. Yeah. But at the same time, veganism, you have to remember in, in terms of the history of the human race, in terms of my campaigning history, you know, I was campaigning on vegetarian. I was the first person to campaign on vegetarianism. I mean, which is really weird, and that's the UK because I worked for the Vegetarian Society. Yeah. And campaigned before. I mean, obviously that existed as an organisation, but they were not campaigning organisations, and neither was the Vegan Society. And it was all incredibly new when I came in to stir it all up, and it was we got loads of media because it was so new. Um, so you have to remember that was only in the 1980s. And veganism wasn't campaigned on at all and was still seen as being very extreme. And you think the distance we've come from those first vegetarian campaigns to today in terms of what's on offer and the acceptance of veganism is extraordinarily a massive, massive leap. So we've done a lot of work. It's just that I guess we've come along at a point where things are so, you know, so desperate that even that's not fast enough, even though we've worked incredibly hard in a very short space of time. But it's, everything's so bloody desperate, you know. Um, we need, every, every, you know, everybody to sort of, you know, if they're not going to go vegan, to massively go along that road towards it. Um, and we need it to happen bloody fast. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's nice to think about it, the way you just described, actually, was that it hasn't been too long and when you sort of started campaigning, veganism wasn't even really campaigned for at all. And to see how far it's come now does give me hope. But like you said, it's we need it so quickly now because we're running out of time. But um, sort of going back to what you said as well with people not being born evil, 
we're born to love animals and if you speak to any children they love animals I mean last weekend I was at the animal rights march of animal rebellion in London and uh, Mm. it was great to see there was like children chanting and they'd made signs and things I just think to some sometimes it's like how could you ever say no to a a six-year-old child saying come on go vegan they've got all these nice signs and and things and um they're just it's just so amazing to see kids that are being brought up to actually love animals and not be speciesist or sort of love love some animals and kill others but I think it's Mm -hmm. just one of those things isn't it we're just conditioned as we grow up to to think these things are normal but hopefully with things such as Viva we can sort of change the way that we bring up children and and show them the right way to treat animals. Yeah absolutely and like you say children just see if, if they're just shown the simple truth you know they they see it and they get it and and they're wonderful in their expressions of just what is the, you know what is true I suppose I mean when my I've got two sons and and I remember when they were at school and when they were little in primary school um they were brought up to not try you know obviously as vegan and they tried meat and they decided they wanted to know as little kids what the hell all the fuss was about. Why was I so against it? Why was everybody else for it? Why were the only ones, you know, and at that point, obviously, they, haven't, they weren't old enough for me to have shown them all the factory footage and all the rest <laughs> of it. And, they, and um, they came home and went, they knew that animals died, though, for this, for this stuff. Um, but the pressure was on that everybody else was doing it. You know, everyone else was eating meat. And what you know, so that so they did try it, and they came home, and they said, and they told me they had. I was really glad that they could, you know, just tell me. And they went, you know, Mum, I've tr- I've tried, and I, and I went, oh, have you? Okay, and I said, and I, so I just said, what what what, do you, what did you think of it? And I just went, it was horrible. And anyway, why people animals just for that? I thought it was going to be the most amazing thing on the whole planet for for it. You know, they didn't use words as sophisticated as this, but to warrant that kind of cruelty. Yeah. And of course, they, you know, they never touched it again. You know, that was enough enough for them. And then, obviously, later on, when they get older, I, I could explain the issues in much more depth. And as they've got older, you know, they're very, you know, vehemently, um, you know, vegan and pro everything that we do. And I, it was really upsetting actually at Vegan Camp Out. Um, we just interviewed um, Chris Packham. And the cameras were not rolling at this point. Um, but Chris Packham, you know, is very scientific and obviously, as you know, knows exactly what's happening to wildlife globally and the decimation of British wildlife specifically. And he's getting quite depressed about it all because, well, <laughs> the portents are not good, let's put it that way. And, um, you know, my sons who are now 19, you know, they said, it feels like we're the last generation to be able to do anything and that, that everything's being put onto our generation's shoulders, that what we're being passed is a terrible legacy. And, you know, it, 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 it's, it's constantly there in the back of your mind. And the camera guy, he was, I guess, in his late 20s, said exactly the same. So I feel exactly the same. It's like we've just been handed this legacy. We're so desperate to be, to be able to do it. But we're not the, you know, we're not the leaders, but we want our leaders to do this. And so, you know, we're all changing. We're telling everybody else to change. But there's this feeling that's building, I think, which, of course, Animal Rebellion and Extinction Rebellion are picking up on. 
which is people are becoming, I think, getting closer and closer to being more prepared to take action themselves. But the key thing is, is what action do they take? And that's, that's, that's the real interesting debate, isn't it? Because I had a debate with one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion. I said, what are you after? Do you want the government to go? Is, is really your aim for the government to collapse and the whole system as we know it to completely disappear? And are you going to say that publicly? You know, what is it that you want? What is it that I want? What is it that you want? What is it that everybody listening to this actually wants? And what do you think is the solution? So, I mean, this week I launched um, about 200 groups and businesses, you know, globally. We launched something called the Plant-Based Treaty, which is a starting point. It's a framework, basically, to say what the solutions are. The thing, the, the challenge is, as you well know, is getting governments to sit up and take notice. We know what that framework is and what it should be. In other words, what the solutions are relating to agriculture. And we know how to get there. But how do we persuade those with the power to enforce this? Because it needs to happen quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you said... Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just about to say, I'm I'm of a similar age. I'm only 25. And that's exactly how I feel is sort of we're the last generation to be able to sort of make an impact. And now it's all upon us. But even what you're saying now, I don't really know what the answer is, what it is that we really want. I mean, for governments to do something about it, but what is it we want them to actually do? So I think for anyone who's listening to this, I think one of the solutions, look, look at the plant-based treaty and just Google it because you, you'll see the treaty and that's what Viva signed up to. And we're launching a section which is called Viva Farming, actually. And it's all about transitioning farming over to vegan farming and um, how that transitioning could take place. And also, obviously, part of... Because if you go to veganic farming in the UK, we're, we're in a very fortunate position at the moment that we've got a hell of a lot of land that's very fertile and that we can grow a lot here um, relative to some other countries. And um, it's all been worked out um, by academics, agricultural academics, that we could feed in the UK about 200 million people. We could be pretty much completely self-sustaining if we wanted to be. And at the moment, we're so reliant on imports. Um, but a lot of it is like imports for animal feed, for example. And it weighs so much land, all the things that you know, that we're nowhere near self-sustaining at the moment. So food security going into the climate crisis and everything is a massive issue for the UK and for many other countries. Um and the only way forward in terms of sequestering carbon is obviously for people to become vegan so that much less land is needed for agriculture so that you can rewild vast areas of land. So the solutions are there and there's lots of ideas of things that could, the government could do to make that happen. But you really do need good leadership for this. You know, because it does need to be organised and it does need support and it does need subsidising. Um, it's not that money has to come from elsewhere because, the, you know, the, the, the agricultural, animal agricultural industry actually globally is staggeringly subsidised. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's moving the subsidies, if you like, into something that can save the world. Um, but getting leadership, as I say, worldwide for that to happen... It's, it's kind of like whether, whether that's going to happen in some kind of orderly fashion or whether we all have to accept that we have to take some kind of responsibility and actually do the actions locally and almost take over from the government on a local level so that we're all working on a local level to, make, to save the planet, basically. 
Um, but all these things, you know, it, it's it's really impossible to know. There are other people, like I interviewed um, the billionaire, Jim Mellon, who's very into the cultured meat of the solution because people like that believe that the, the public worldwide is simply not going to go vegan. You know, um, they're, they're totally still immersed into the meat culture. So the way to do it is actually swap meat with meat. Only that meat is, you know, as you know, cultured meat. So, so, so almost very, very few animals are involved because you create these infinite lines that literally are supposed to be infinite, go on forever. Um, and you can create leather, um, you can create milk, you can create fish, you can create anything really that you want. It's all, all the science is there. And he feels like we're on the sort of like verge of that being able to go commercial. And so people like that think that there's going to be a relatively orderly changeover because that will, in effect, free loads of land and we'll be able to rewild and all the rest of it. Um, which, you know, is another way of thinking that you work within the system um, using technology. Um, other people argue against that saying, no, because capitalism fundamentally is going to destroy the planet because... Capitalism is dependent on growth, um, and the planet simply can't keep sustaining that growth. We've got to get out of our head that everything has to grow because it, how can it grow, you know, ad infinitum? Because the planet's resources are finite, and so there are very fundamental differences in how we get to this, you know, to this better place. I think ultimately we're, you know, um, nature is going to sort of um, <laughs> is going to take over and um, force the change. To be honest, yeah, especially with the the sort of the current situation going on with COVID, I think that's just another reason why we should just stop farming altogether. I mean, even today I heard not related at all actually, but I heard on the I was just eating my breakfast and I heard on the radio that they were going to come up with some injection to lower people's cholesterol. Yeah. It's just yeah. crazy. I mean, if people just weren't eating animal products, then we wouldn't have these problems with heart disease and things in the first place. And mm. I just don't, I just don't get how it's it's one like I said earlier, where certain people don't actually care about sort of the animal welfare issues and things like that. But when it comes down to your own health, I just don't get how that isn't enough to make people sort of make the switch towards veganism. Because if you don't care about your own health, then what what do you care about? Yeah, it is insane. I think. You do have to remember that a lot of people just are still, they just don't know, um, you know, the truth. You go along to your GP with heart disease and very few GPs actually say, well, actually, you know, to protect yourself and even reverse what you're going through, veganism is incredibly powerful. Very few GPs say that. They just reach out for the pen and the prescriptions, and that's what they know, and that's what this is feeding into, isn't it? It's just we live in this prescription society, don't we? Rather than actually take care of people. Um, You know, I did nutritional therapy for three years, and it was one of our big things that every GP surgery should have multiple nutritional therapists. The trouble with that is, of course, you're not doing a five-minute appointment. You're doing minimum 60 minutes at the beginning, followed up by minimum of 30 minutes, yeah. on several appointments to help somebody through and to do something like reverse heart disease, which you can do through diet. And also for diabetes type 2, vegan diet, you know, is incredibly powerful for these diseases. But you need, you're investing in people, aren't you, instead of in drugs. And our society just doesn't seem to be geared up for that at all. 
I think as well it's one of those things where they sort of rely upon us spending money on drugs so they just prescribe us something that we take for the rest of our life to to cope with what we've already got instead of trying to reverse reverse it or actually help people we just sort of get prescribed a pill that you take and then you have to purchase that every day for however long. Well, if you think about it, the whole of the NHS, it, the whole remit of it is geared towards saving people who are already ill. Yeah. You know, so emergency operations or operations, um, drugs that try and quell whatever it is that you've already developed. And much of those things, of course, are needed. What we really need <laughs> is a it. massive investment in, in stop, yeah, exactly, in stopping these things in the first place. And, and then you're back to, you know, going back to what we were saying at the beginning, which is it's schooling. You start right from, you know, you start right from age four when people go in, where food and all its impacts, whether it's the environment, on health, all the animals, all those are just part and parcel of education. Because to me, that's fundamental education. Things like how to grow food, I think, should be part of education. Yep. You know, so the kids are enjoying actually growing um, fruits and veg. And, you know, because kids do enjoy stuff like that. And like you said, going to see animals and actually have contact with animals, um, because, like you said, kids love nothing more than that, which is why you'll find every sort of place that's got animals that's geared up to toddlers. Every parent will be there because they know that's exactly what will keep their toddler quiet because they absolutely adore that company. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's such a rethink, though. And all of this is perfectly possible. It's just making, the, you know, the systems, you know, shape. I can remember going to a teacher's conference years ago and saying, why are you not as part of, because the government brought in this um, whole thing for GCSE, um, citizenship. And I said, why aren't you teaching your kids how to protest? I said, because the world is heading towards everything that now is happening, the climate crisis, sixth mass extinction the world heading in that direction so you need these need to be prepared adults they need to know how to protest and stand up for their rights and stand up for the world and instead you know the government saying um that these things are dangerous and i said it's dangerous to not do these things (laughs) you know in 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 a true democracy you would welcome all this you know um i mean Bless people like Greta Thunberg, who actually has had the balls to stand up and say how it is. I love her and her speech. She's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and uh, kids going off school to actually do these youth strikes. Just amazing. You know, that's, you know, that's what we need to build up. Everything needs to build up. You know, people need to be walking out of work. We need to be coming out of work en masse. And actually saying everything has to change, you know, it, 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 you know, how much more serious do things have to be become, you know? Yeah, I think sadly it'll be one of those situations where it's we only act when it's too late, mm. and then we look back on it and think, oh, we should have done this, but now mm. now it's too late. But who knows? I mean, I think it all comes, like you said, it comes back down to the education. If we were teaching our kids these things from a, a young age, I mean. Something that I find really interesting as well is sort of kids know just on a basic level that killing animals for food, whether it tastes good or not, is is wrong because you're sort of robbing an animal of their life unnecessarily. But when you speak to adults that have had that conditioning 
over years and years, it's such a mission to try and convince somebody that what they're doing is wrong and they have all these Mm. excuses. But when you talk to children, just the fact that they know that the animals died, that's enough for them to not want to consume animals at all. Yeah, it's it's horrifying. And it's it's, um, when you speak to people, sometimes I do public talks and talk about exactly what you're touching on, I'll say, what would you think of me as a parent if I'd, you know, brought my sons up as meat eaters and handed them the knife when they were four and said, okay, kill that lamb in the field. And you, you, you would think I was a psychopath if you had a four-year-old, you know, you know, stabbing an animal. And yet, if we were truly carnivorous, i.e. we needed meat to survive, that's obviously exactly what you would be doing. It'd be a completely normal, sane thing to do. Yeah. Um, the fact that it, 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 it's so absolutely outrageous and so disgusting and it's all hidden away is kind of a, a very big clue that we shouldn't be doing this, you know. Um, and in fact, my degree very many years ago, but it was zoology. So I, I do I do enjoy looking at the physiology side of things. And one of my talks is wheat eaters or meat eaters. And um, I look at this sort of the evolution of the human species and what we have evolved to do. It's a completely different argument. It's not a philosophical argument, it's a biological argument. But I really enjoy doing that. And one of my friends who's a GP, he used to lecture and he used to show student, medical students um, a slide of the digestive system, one slide on the left, the other on the right, and he'd ask the medical students what the difference was. And most of them would say one's a man and one's a woman. And in fact, it was one was a gorilla and one was a human. Yeah. And point was we're so close you know we're clearly we're you know one of five great apes left alive on this planet and um you know we are not this huge carnivorous animal it's meant to go around killing everything in it you know in its sight um you know it's quite the opposite and it's you know it sparks off a really good debate with medical students like what is it that we thrive on of course we can survive on meat of course we can we're an incredibly adaptable animal um, but what do we thrive on? What actually reduces chronic disease? And if and if you can eat a vegan diet that reduces so many chronic diseases, why on earth would you take all this life completely needlessly? Why would you do that and cause all that pain and all that suffering? And at the same time, the destruction of our entire planet and take everything down. You know, it's just so it's so insane, so insane. Yeah, it does just blow my mind. I mean, sort of as we've been talking, it's obvious all these things are linked. Animal cruelty and our health and the environment. And there's so many reasons why why veganism is the best choice. And something that made me laugh whilst you was talking was just the fact that if we were these carnivorous animals that everyone claims to be, sort of like lions and things, we wouldn't be afraid of seeing the reality that animals face, but instead we choose to hide away from it. And I think if, if we were these carnivorous beings, we'd have no issue with uh, actually sort of killing the animals ourselves, whereas most people can't even watch footage of an animal being killed, but will claim to be carnivores. No, and in fact, if we were truly carnivorous animals, um, we the shape of us would be entirely different. So, for example, every carnivore, um, every mammalian carnivore has jaws that jut right out uh, with these big canines that are very sharp teeth. Um, and the reason they have those great big canines, of course, is to hold a struggling prey. And the reason they have these large jutting out jaws is also to hold a struggling prey. And relative to the size of their head, their jaws open extremely wide. And in fact, ours don't at all. And 
one of the as I said in one of the talks that I give, I, I show a lion with the when you watch them yawn with their mouths wide open. They sure enough, they open huge and wide, and their jaws open only open up and down in one direction, and that's because their jaws are fixed to have incredible strength that they can crunch down on a living being. Whereas ours, our jaws move in pretty much every direction. And if you open your mouth as wide as possible, it's still nothing in compared to the size of your head compared to a lion. And you can imagine us walking up to, you know, a lamb um, in a field or a calf or something or a pig for that matter, whatever that we normally eat um, as a society and actually trying to jump on their back. You know, your nails wouldn't go through their hide. Your teeth wouldn't even <laughs> To make any kind of indent, the animal would think completely insane and run off, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, without the uses of guns and knives and that, we would be completely and utterly useless at it because we're not geared up to it biologically to do it at all. You know, it's just not easy. It's obvious that our hands were there for, you know, picking fruits and eating leaves, nuts, shoots, um, and roots and so on and so on and so on and so on. Everything about us is screaming that we're a, what's known as a true giver. So we're not herbivores like cows. We're not grass eaters. Um, we don't have multiple stomachs. We have one stomach like other frugivores where you survive on all kinds of different plant materials like the other four great apes, like I said. Um, um, so people will say, oh, well, chimpanzees, they eat, you know, they eat meat sometimes. And, and so obviously I researched all that and um, got some of Jane Goodall's research because obviously she was with um chimpanzee troops for many 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 years they've been very well studied and i looked at the percentage of meat that they consumed as an overall diet and it's around one percent it's a tiny 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 of a diet and of course they don't consume dairy and they don't consume fish so they do it's, it's true some of them will get get all really hyper excited and hunt as a group and it's it's all the males and they think it's related to some kind of sexuality um but it's certainly not the normal behaviour um, at all, and the vast, vast, vast majority of their diet, of course, is what's known as frugivorous. So, you know, it, it's this kind of notion that we're somehow, you know, like you just said, a lion or a tiger, you know, or a wolf. We, we, you know, we're, we're just not. It's just not. And, and anyway, you know, there's what? How many billions of us on the planet now? You know, seven odd billion heading towards ten billion. Um, by 2050 and we simply or the planet simply cannot afford to just wipe away every wilderness to grow crops and pasture land to feed all these farmed animals it is just an impossible situation because we're wiping out all wildlife with it and I have actually had people say to me oh, what does it matter about wiping out wildlife and I'll literally list through why it matters from a purely selfish point of view and make it really clear that the human race cannot survive the wiping out of wildlife um, we're, we're completely doomed if we do that and we'll continue the way that we are so yeah we, we, we are sort of on um, a bit of a suicide mission at, at the moment um, so it's whether we can kind of you know like I say, head that off in time and people, we're offering solutions, we're offering frameworks for those solutions um, and either the leader, the existing leaders of the world are going to try and put that into place or we're going to have a so-called new world order putting it into place because, what, or, you know, or, or we're wiped out, of course. Uh, yeah, but yeah, one of those scenarios. <laughs> <laughs> so just before we sort of come to an end, 
if you could leave the listeners with one message in favour of veganism as a whole and also to do with Hogwood, sort of a message about that, what would you what would you leave everybody with? Um, I'd say having had the like I say, the absolute privilege to know pigs because I'm going back to Hogwood now, as individuals, the public are encouraged to not farmed animals as individuals and every individual has their own unique personality and character and anyone listening to this who knows other species like say for example a dog that you're living with or a cat or whatever I can absolutely totally you know reassure you that pigs are every bit as bright intelligent funny with very different characteristics so the pig so the six piglets that I had the privilege of knowing um, you know, like Lily Bubbles and Mia Snuffles, Tom Rocket, Jack Wigginson. They all were very different. Jack was very affectionate, but also very mischievous. Lily was very affectionate. and She was the first piglet to actually get on my knee and snuggle into my neck. Mm-hmm. And very playful and just so intelligent. My mum, Hope, we call Hope Apple Blossom. When a vet came to neuter the males, because obviously, you, you know, you have to do that in a sanctuary situation, otherwise they're trying to breed with each other, of course. Um, he, out of kindness, was going to just um, neuter them without taking them too far from the mother, so he could just, you know, quickly put them back, you know, shortly afterwards. But she went so ballistic, she was charging, and it became quite a dangerous situation because he took her piglets and of course this was her fifth pregnancy and the only one where she was allowed to keep her piglets because the others were caught in a farm so all her piglets would have been slaughtered at six months old yeah. they were all taken at four weeks old so this was the first time she you know she'd had the genuine experience of true motherhood and there was no way she was going to let this guy take these piglets away from her so he he said oh i've got to come back and do this sort this think about this do this a different way put the males back and you know, I kid you not, I didn't know pigs were this sophisticated in their language. When we went outside for the first time, she was kept calling them and all these different ways of calling them. And when all six wandered from her, it was the three boys that she called back because of what had happened to them, one presumes. And, she, you know, she did a specific call to the three boys, Lucas, Jack, um, sorry, my brain's gone, uh, and Tom. Lucas, Jack, and Tom, those three just came running to her. So she developed a call that was specific, you know, like that. Um, yeah. And the people understand how family-orientated these animals are and how much their family means to them. We totally dismiss the capabilities of the emotions. That's something that, you, you know, you really come to understand. We've been... I cannot even find the words of how much is hammered out of us the other animals experience all the emotions that we do and probably experience some of those emotions much more intensely, to be honest. We've been so taught from a very young age that we are the most intelligent species, that we are superior in just about every way, but specifically intelligently and emotionally. We're the only truly emotional animal that really understands our emotions and really feels them, and it is absolute bollock. Yeah. You know, these animals, anyone who's got a dog will know the, the intensity of the pleasure of just saying, do you want to go walk? I wish I felt that, intensely, that intense pleasure of somebody saying to me, would you like to go for a walk? I really do wish I felt that. You know, they feel intense emotion. 
and pigs are every bit as like that. So growing up through the months and months and months, Hope and her piglets were such a close family. And I wondered whether when they got to adulthood, whether they would start to fight and whether the males would kind of almost be shoved out of the, you know, of, of, of the pack, as it were. And it just didn't happen. They are still today the closest, closest family that you could ever... And one of the girls got pregnant by a wild boar, by the way. So they removed sanctuaries because this wild boar... <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, really, but, you know, you kind of can't... But you see, Hope, she started to call when she came into season... And it sounded like a bloody dinosaur. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and this noise was travelling for goodness knows how long, but a very long way. And I always had this vision that I joked about it with Mary and Jeanette, who run the sanctuary. I was just like, I said, this wild boar is going to come thundering along through the woods. <laughs> and oh my God, it actually happened. You know, and he, he actually, God knows how he did it, but he let this very high fencing. And he did, he mated with um, um, one of the girls and they didn't know she was pregnant, to be honest. But in fact, she had um, five piglets and four of them died. And one who survived, um, Dina, they're called after the Forest of Dean, um, which is where the the wild boar came from. Um, I just wanted to tell you what is because this is hardly ever seen in a sanctuary situation. So obviously, it's a very unusual situation. Uh, Hope, the grandma, tried to suckle the granddaughter and was utterly protective of her daughter and granddaughter, always constantly having an eye on them. And I watched them build, try and build nests, you know, natural nests out of collecting materials together, you know, leaves, yep. um, twigs and so on and so forth. And it was just absolutely fascinating. And, you know, all of them were so protective. When they had to move sanctuaries, we had to move, obviously, them as a whole family group. So there's the six original babies, the grandbaby, <laughs> and the mum. So that's eight animals. And it was pretty much impossible getting loading them onto this lorry to get them this other, to this other sanctuary until one of my colleagues actually picked up the baby, Dina, and, oh, my God, you thought they were taking no notice of what was going on because all like like they were all eating and just ignoring us and wouldn't actually, you know, because we because <laughs> we're all really soft. We wouldn't. None of us would actually, you know, you know, you've got to get on board. You know, like the driver was saying, "Oh my God, we're so soft. This is never going to happen. I'm going to be here forever." <laughs> and uh, um, um, so she picked up Dina, and oh my God, the family just immediately ran into the lorry after calling, 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 including the three boys. And it just kind of really brought home to me yet again what a close-knit family they were and how much much they love each other and protect each other. Um, And they went to another, you know, sanctuary completely safely and all the rest of it. But um, that's a very long question. But I just wanted people to go away from this realising that every life, is precious and we do not have the right to take any of them at all and what a society we put all these animals through chickens in quantities that are so staggeringly large we can't even imagine them uh, one billion chickens a year that are killed and each chicken anyone here who's listening to this and got chickens in their garden will immediately know 
what incredible characters they are and how different, again, they are from each other. Um, pigs, I've just talked about, you know, turkeys, lambs, all of them. And yet we are told to dismiss this. We are, we are brainwashed, totally brainwashed from an early age to dismiss caring. And if you stand out from the crowd, you know, when I was a kid and, you know, started to speak out about it, people made damn sure that you were, you know, you felt like an oddball. You, there was something wrong with you for having any kind of compassion. And, mm. um, you know, God forbid that you expressed that compassion because you made everyone else feel uncomfortable. And I would just say, take away from this, be brave, stand up for what you know in your heart and your soul and with every bit of your being is right and is true. And never let anybody take you off you know, that path because fundamentally this is a very big fight, but you are part one of the good guys who's fighting for those individuals um, and if you know, and if you don't stand up and be their voice, you know who's who who is going to do it. We need all of us to be brave, to stand up together, to collaborate, to support each other, and you know to actually save wildlife, save the world. It, it, it's that important. So don't let anybody, you know, um, make you doubt what you're doing or make you know make you feel insecure in any kind of way whatsoever you know you're part of a massive massive movement now and if you ever want information by the way i should say if you go on viva.org.uk it's all completely free and everything that we've been talking about is really easy to navigate your way around now to back up your own arguments and what you feel and know that in fact you're the normal one <laughs> you know you're the same one you're the one that's doing the right thing and and have strength in that and you know um at the end of the day you know the planet is going to thank you <laughs> yeah not yeah. not the meat-eating norm of a lot of people which is destroying everything they're going to thank you the vegan yeah i think that's something so important to remember is that often as vegans we're portrayed as the weird crazy people but actually we are the normal people if being compassionate and loving towards all animals makes me crazy then so be it exactly it's it's the fact that we've just seen to all the bollocks and we're doing what any sane people would do once they've seen the truth um if you step inside a factory farm, if you look at the decimation of the world's wildernesses, if you look at the state of the world's health, you know, how, how you know, turn it on its head and you think, how can the world not be vegan? You know, it, 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 but, but things are changing and they're changing, like I said before, very, very, very rapidly indeed. And it's a big, big movement now. And in fact, when I looked at some figures, just finally, I'll just say, on a note of hope, um, the younger generation, which they were looking at age 6 to 24, actually, um, on a global scale, not just Britain. And it is an astonishing number of people who have rejected um, animal products or part animal products. It was almost one in two in some form. And that, I'm not saying every, you know, one in two young people are vegan, obviously not. What I'm saying is there's a, an awareness that never was there before to the degree where all of those people had rejected part of animal products and consciously done it for one of the reasons that we're talking about. So things are shifting massively because 
you, you know, if you talked to me 20 years ago, that stat would have been so much lower. Um, and veganism, as you know, because everywhere we go in every national chain, it's there, it's in front of us now, which hugely helps normalise it so that it's not seen as being the odd thing anymore, which helps us um, persuade other people to go vegan. It makes it easier for them. And so, you know, things are changing very, very rapidly. And that wouldn't have happened if all the people that are listening to this program, you know, hadn't been part of that. You know, it's just through people talking to people largely that changes things, educating yourself um, and supporting organizations like Viva who, you know, have been campaigning on this for quite a long time now, almost 30 years. So, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, take hope for that and and don't ever feel alone. By the way, uh, I've just moved house and just go on social media because someone was asking me this the other day at Camp Out, and I just said just go on social media. And if there isn't, uh, say, a, a Liverpool vegans or a you know Huddersfield vegans or an Edinburgh vegans or a Swansea vegans, then set it up just as a Facebook page, and you'd be amazed. Just set up one event, like here locally where I am. We just did a picnic in a local park, and twenty people came. Twenty, you know, it's only a small town. Yeah. Um, we're doing um, um, street action with Viva um, next week, actually, and so and so and so it starts, and that you know, and everybody do that all over the UK. You know, reach out, meet other vegans, and um, help change the world. I think just as well what you just said. I hosted um, an outreach event in about a year ago now and we did one a couple of weeks ago in London but I live in a tiny little town called Burnham on Crouch which is in Essex Uh, it's quite out the way sort of in the countryside I thought there was like no more vegans other than me I thought it was just me on my own and I've always felt a bit lonely sort of thinking I'm the only one here that is is this way and I hosted one event and I think about 11 other vegans from Burnham turned up and I was just it was just crazy because the town is honestly it's tiny there's only one shop so it's just crazy to think that we're, we're all sort of in the same shops and we never meet each other or anything so hosting that event was just amazing to see that there was more people in my area so I think yeah what you said to anyone listening that feels like they're on their own just set up a page and see who is in your area because I think you would be surprised yeah I agree I agree I was very pleasantly surprised and that's 20 people turning up in a small town and obviously, there were loads more vegans who couldn't turn out at that particular time. So, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's just, you know, like you say, some little acorns, you know, um, and now we're all joining together to do other stuff. So, it's, yep. um, yeah, and, uh, you know, it's great to make new friends as well, you know. <laughs> so, so, yeah, do it. Reach out. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you to Viva and everything that you guys do. It's just amazing all the campaigns and the resources for people to, to actually learn about veganism for themselves. Thank you. And if anybody wants to watch Hogwood, if you're listening to this and you haven't yet, it's on Amazon Prime. Um, and as I said, it's going on Netflix from next spring. But at the moment, you, could, you can view it on, on YouTube. It is, you do have to pay for it. Um, it doesn't cost much, but you do. Um, and on Amazon Prime as well. So it's called Hogwood, a modern horror story. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed this one. As always, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and expect some great things to come in the future. I'm currently working on a short campaign video all about the lives of fish, organising outreach and more podcast episodes all about important topics relevant to animal rights. So thanks for listening and until next time, stay safe and stay vegan. (laughs) 